This is a Sunday talk by Joel called "Ego and Egolessness," recorded January twelfth, nineteen ninety-two, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This morning, I'm going to take as a topic one that was suggested by a woman who's a member of our Wednesday practitioners group, and we've been reading this book by Franklin Merrill Wolf called "Pathways Through to Space." Which I highly recommend to uh, everybody here, uh, which is an account of his uh, Gnostic awakening, the 30 days or so uh, after his Gnostic awakening. And we're in the midst of reading this and discussing it. And the woman who's in our group uh, has uh, is taking classes at uh, the university, and one class falls on the Wednesday, so she won't be able to be there for the next two months. So she wrote me a letter, asked me some questions uh, in relation to the book and in relation to what Dr. Wolf said in the book. Uh, and I promised her I would respond on a Sunday. Unfortunately, she's not here on Sunday, but she'll be able to hear this tape, and so she'll get some response. Uh, the letter essentially uh, asks three questions. Uh, what is ego? Uh, what is ego-lessness? And how do you use ego to overcome ego? In uh, her letter, she uh, goes into it, phrases it in terms of a Freudian paradigm, ego and id and superego and things like that, and then various functions, thinking and, and whatnot. And m most of us perhaps uh, don't use a Freudian paradigm, but we can translate it into more common terminology and see if we can't come to some sort of um, answers to these questions. At least, uh, we might say, a guidance to answers to these questions. So the first question is, what is ego? What is ego? What, does somebody have any idea what ego is here? Now, come on, you live in a Western <laughs> culture. Most of you have been at least through high school. Well, within, I can see in myself sometimes the the sense of something to protect. Um, when I'm discussing something with somebody else and I, I answer back, maybe even surprising myself at how much I, uh, I, I want to uh, respond or to, uh, to uh, um, argue against what the other person said, I find that I've got something at stake there and that I would call the ego. Very good. Very good. This is uh, not so much the technical definition of ego, but the way it's used in our culture when we talk about an egotist, or someone's got a big ego. They got a lot at stake. Mm -hmm. That's what that means. Excellent. Much better than technical definition. What is at stake in there? What is it that's at stake? Image. 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 Excellent. An image of what? Who I am. Image of yourself. Self-image. Right. Personality, you said. Who else? Anybody else? The security of that self-image. Securing that self-image. Yeah, it feels yeah. good if I can remain what I thought I was, but sure. if I don't turn out to be as smart in that conversation because my argument fails, then I'm crushed. The ego's crushed. This is actually interesting because... Uh, here we're using ego uh, as slightly different from something else. 
just the way he said that. If my, uh, if my self-image is attacked and I can't defend it, I feel crushed. So image, uh, ego here is not actually being used as identical to self or I. It's a, sort of a shield, self-image that's thrown up here. What is, but then let's drive this question farther. What is being protected? If ego is the image of who you are, then who are you that that's the image of? Nobody has any idea? A, a separate self. A separate self. Separate from the image. Yes, but separate from everything. An isolated separation. Okay, what is a self? Well, in this context, it's something that feels different from everybody else. It's something that feels. Is that, I mean, it's a feeling? What sort of a thing is it that feels different? I'd say it's more maybe an intellectual and emotional construct. It's just kind of a, a, a nebulous mass of thoughts and, and feelings that we identify with as being ourself. Who who is it? Who's the we that identifies with it? Part of this nebulous mass of thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> no, but look how interesting it is. Because I've said this often, I is one of the terms we use the most. In our conversation, in, in our outward conversation, and in our heads. It's always I, I, I. I want this, I don't want that, I like that, I don't like that. But we, we stop and try to analyze, try to figure out what this word I stands for. It's very difficult. Who am I? Or what am I? How would you go about trying to uh, discover who you are? Look inside. This is one of the major purposes of meditation. We meditate here every morning, and we start uh, with a training of just watching the breath, and this trains the mind to be still and quiet and to be able to observe, but there's no magic about the breath or any other object you take as, uh, a, med as a training device. The real purpose is to look inside, to be very still and watch all the things that arise in consciousness. And to see if any of them, if you can find any I in all this mass of confusion that arises in consciousness. If we look into it, if we watch very carefully, and if we do it rather systematically, uh, then you will at least find out what I isn't. For instance, a lot of people associate I with their body. Now, this is uh, tricky and paradoxical, particularly in our language, because we often talk about having a body. We talk about my body, as though the body were something separate. And yet, if you, if you, ever, if you think your image, self-image is threatened, let somebody point a gun at your body, you, your eye's really going to feel threatened. Are we our body or not? Do we have a body or are, are we a body? What's, what's the relationship here? It's, it's a very interesting uh, question. And each and every person 
can answer the question for themselves simply by looking, observing. For instance, generally speaking, we think that uh, part of the body is a spleen, right? A spleen. Now, if you just look inside for a moment, how many of you can find a spleen? You, you can. I'm a nurse. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what does that have to do with it? You mean right now you're. That I know, I know what it looks like and I know where it's located. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't mean look inside somebody else's body. No, I'm talking about his eyes. Right. Here. Can you feel your spleen? No. No. Well, I'm, I'm talking about now an empirical study here. I'm not talking about what you imagine is in there. I'm talking about direct looking. Directly looking in your own experience right now. Anybody experience any spleen? No. There, there is certainly the idea of a spleen, particularly if you're a nurse. You're probably aware of it much more than anybody else. I had to struggle hard this morning to think up some sort of organ that I was not aware of. <laughs> spleen came to mind. <laughs> I'm sure there are a lot more, too. If you're a nurse, you can think of lots of things that are in the body that none of us ever uh, experience directly, or perhaps very rarely. Right now, in your immediate experience, no spleen. What about a stomach? Someone's nodding over there. Much more so my stomach. <laughs> are, are you, okay, are you experiencing your stomach? Yeah. I, okay. I experience it right now as I'm sitting here. Okay, now describe a stomach to me. I describe my stomach. Okay, yeah. Well, right now it's feeling pressure. It feels warm. Feels full. Feels pressure. Movement. Any sounds? Mine earlier was yeah, complaining. Yeah, I mean, yeah, mine was earlier. Right now, I, not that, I, that are real audible, but yeah, there are sounds. Notice the descriptions here. Pressure, warmth, if it was making sound. This is all we actually experience. Just make big noise. <laughs> big noise. <Yeah. laughs> Our we have an idea now of this sort of ugly looking sack or beautiful looking sack, depending on your point of view, stuck in there with lots of juices and acids and whatnot in there. That's a mental image idea, but our experience, if we really analyze it, I mean analyze it in terms of look, listen, feel, is in terms of sensations. Pressure, warmth, sounds, rumblings, movement. And those sensations are constantly arising and passing. Arising and passing. They aren't sitting there like a big lump of something that's just sitting there in time and space. The whole, what we call the body, is really nothing but a field, if you like, in consciousness, of arising, passing sensations. 
You, you don't have to take my word for it. Please don't take my word for it. All you have to do is just start observing the body moment to moment, day to day. See if you actually ever experience a body the way we think of it. A chunk of something, a hunk of flesh sort of just sitting there. When you look and observe, you find just all these sensations arising, passing, arising, and passing. Are you any one of those sensations? Obviously not, because let's say you were the, the growling of the stomach, the sound. Well, then you would be popping in and out of existence along with the blah, blah, blah. It'd be blah, 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 you'd be there, and then silence, you wouldn't be there. Then blah, 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 you'd be there, and then you wouldn't. But at least something, or a somewhat, let's not even name it, is there to observe this. The loop comes and goes, but the observer, if you like, without saying what this observer could be, remains. This isn't a matter of philosophy now. In fact, this runs counter to all your philosophies, all your mental constructs, everything you've ever been taught. It's just a matter of observing. If you observe closely, and for usually for most people it's a long time because the philosophical construct is very ingrained in us, you convince yourself, not just as a matter of, well, that's an interesting idea, but a matter of experience. That, gee, not only am I not this body, but there's actually no real body there, ever in consciousness. There's a rising and passing and rippling of sensation. It just goes on. And each one of those sensations, by the way, we could think of as being born and dying. Constantly being born and dying. Constant birth and death. Going on all the time through consciousness. I was just thinking, is the observer there, though, <clears throat> always there? Is that, is that well, we're trying to find out what this observer is, and we're going about it trying to find out what it isn't. Mm -hmm. It isn't the sensations of the body. Mm -hmm. That's all. I just thought you said the sensations of the body pass away, but the observer... Is Good. Let's be more careful about our language. Let's say that observation remains. Mm -hmm. Without then even designated as some sort of noun or verb or any sort of category, but observation remains. Observation is going on. Awareness is going on. Awareness is, is there. I mean, always? Or is that what you're saying? Well, you check it out. I mean, as when, let's say... It seems to be a lot of times I'm not aware at all. When? <laughs> well, uh, I don't know, you're driving along in the car, you know, and suddenly you, you just kind of feel like you kind of wake up for a minute and you just go kind of like, God, I can't even remember what I was thinking about. You know? yeah. Like if you're engrossed in a movie or something like that, or is that what you mean? Like when um, your attention is in, entirely outside yourself? Or, well, part partly that, partly you're just. Not. Observe these. No, but this is very good. Observe these transitions. These are slightly like altered states going on all the time. Observe them carefully. Isn't what actually happens is that various. Uh, chunks of contents of consciousness uh, come and go rather rapidly. For instance, you, you might have uh, be in the midst of a fantasy, and then uh, you're driving along, and then a car swerves in front of you, and you stop, and you swerve, and then you 
that whole fantasy is gone. And so you said, gee, I, where was I, so to speak? But really what's changing is not uh, awareness isn't coming and going. It's just, you might say worlds are coming and going. And, and so one world rapidly disappears and then suddenly there's another world there and there's a apparent discontinuity, disjuncture. And so it, it's, it's disorientating. So would you say then the observer had entered and the observing was going on in another world? Well, I'm just saying observing is always going on. These sensations come and go, but observing is, is, is happening, if we like. Well, I think I've been confused like Brian, where it seems like the observer has disappeared um, if my mind is, say, taken away in medica meditation or something <coughs> like that, and then I come back and the observer is there again, but I'm not sure. I mean, I had no sense of the observer being there when I was lost in the thought. So, so in that sense, you aren't that observer, are you? See, who's the eye who had a sense of an observer or not? You see what I mean? When well, Look at the way we say this, you know. Well, before I was meditating, I sat down, I had a sense of uh, an observer there. And then in meditation, I lost the sense of observer. But then when meditation was over, I had the sense of observer again. Now, now I'm just going to be interested in asking, who's the eye who's observing all this? <laughs> I don't want to all I can do is suggest a, a way to analyze, to experience and analyze here, uh, we can't conduct the whole process in one morning and, and it is not convincing, truly convincing it doesn't change anything unless you do it to the point where you have a real insight into it. You, you, it becomes not just a question of thinking about this in a new way, but you actually start to experience in a new way. We can go on here. We often think we are our emotions. And there's, uh, in our language built in, we so sometimes say, I am angry. We rarely say, I have anger. In Spanish, they do. And there are some verbs like that, uh, some constructions that we have in English. Oh, I have a lot of loathing for that person. Or I'm full of disgust, which implies more of a separation. So here you are, and you could be filled up with disgust and then emptied out. So you're not really the disgust. We watch your emotions, and emotions are... Uh, range. Some of them can be almost identical with the physical, what we call physical sensations, bodily sensations. You may have a very powerful sense of anger and you may, uh, and you look to see what this anger is and you may feel very strongly a knot, a knotting. A knot is a metaphor. We don't actually feel a knot. We feel this tension, this tremendous pressure in the stomach, for instance, the stomach area. Or a tightening of the throat. We feel it as bodily sensation. But we also uh, feel emotion as a kind of a coloration in awareness. For instance, if you're listening to some beautiful music, there's a general sort of what we might call joyfulness, which is just sort of a, a kind of a, a color to everything. I'm using a metaphor here. It can be very subtle. 
We couldn't actually, and this is why our words for emotions aren't nearly as precise as they are for bodily things. So our words for emotions are moods. Uh, it's very hard to describe, uh, to define moods. But we do know moods come and go. I'm in a funk. Oh, I'm cheerful. They pass, come and go. You aren't actually anger. If you were, then you would only be here when anger was here. But anger, you might, you might be angry for a long time, but nobody's angry forever. Or <laughs> we hope not. Some people are so chronically uh, stuck in one emotion, they seem that that is what they are. We can apply the same thing to thoughts, and thoughts is a very strong one and very powerful. You mentioned being in a fantasy, driving along, and you're in some world of thought, and then you sort of are popped back into uh, another world. But the very fact in meditation, particularly, we can learn to watch thought come and go. Just like emotions, just like sensations. They're kind of images. Or maybe you experience them as uh, auditory. Visual or auditory. You can even have, in a certain sense, thoughts about smells. Have you ever... Uh, you know, had a, a a memory of a smell that isn't, at least you don't identify as being physically out there, the smell of your childhood bedroom or something, it comes back to you. But all these come and go. But observation of it, it doesn't come and go. There may be even qualities or levels to observation. Uh, a sharp, focused observation. A fuzzy, confused observation. But we know when we're confused. Observation doesn't... What I mean by observation here is just simply an awareness. If you say, I'm, I'm very confused this morning... Who knows the confusion is going on? Finally, the last one, the hardest one, of course, to get over, and I've said this before, is the idea of will, which is a very mysterious idea anyway. We, we feel that we have some sort of will, that we can do things, make things happen. We can will our hand to move up and down. We can... Uh, decide to buy a new car or not, or whatever. Actually, if you observe, and this is very hard to observe, if you observe this, first of all, you find that it isn't so easy. Particularly when you're watching. It's very interesting how this works. It's sort of a digression here, but uh, we do in our meditation retreats a walking meditation. People go out walking every day, don't think anything of it, the body walks along just fine. The minute you put the attention on walking, <laughs> everything gets very shaky. One of the things you have to learn in meditation uh, retreat is stop interfering with the body, just let it walk, and then you can just relax, and then you just watch it walk along. 
example here of how the body has, in a certain sense, a will of its own. But even in situations where we really feel very strongly that, that we are making a decision, and again, it, that itself will throw us back on the question, who's the I that's making the, a decision? But if you watch decisions, you find that they happen spontaneously. Let's say you're going to buy a car. You And let's say you're going to approach it very rationally. You, you look at your money in the bank, you decide how much money you can uh, afford to spend on the car. You go down to the library, you buy a consumer uh, report, you read up on all the latest models, you compare them, you take into consideration whether you want to buy American or Japanese. Uh, you decide that the idea of buying American is stupid because uh, we're the ones who inaugurated the whole thing of free trade and competition, so you go ahead and buy Japanese. <laughs> and you hope that GM will make a car with a steering wheel on the right side of the road for the Japanese so that they'll buy it rather than whining about it. I shouldn't inject politics into this. But in any case, you take in all these factors. Maybe you do buy American. And, and then you uh, go out and you see some cars and you get down to two cars you like. You like the Ford and you like the Honda. And then watch how the decision is actually made. It happens. There's a moment when the decision is made. It does not happen by a logical step. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You may follow the logical step, and the logical step may say, buy Honda. But you like the Ford better. So you buy the Ford. And then if the decision isn't made completely and cleanly, uh, you find that uh, the, it keeps wavering in there. You buy the Ford because you liked it better. You just liked the way it looked and the way it felt and all that. And then things start going wrong with it. And you say, I wish I bought the damn Honda. The, this business of, I decide something and that's it. It doesn't happen that way. Watch carefully. And again, this is not a question of philosophy. You watch in your own experience. If you carry this inquiry through, through bodily sensations, all the things you think you are, emotions, thoughts, will, whatever else you can think of, more subtle, observer who observes an observer, the one who's having awareness or whatever, you keep pushing it back farther and farther, you will not find anything called ego, self, I. In all this blooming confusion that's arising in consciousness, you will not find any I. You may very well find images, particularly in thought, you may, and you can sometimes identify this very precisely. You're having a fantasy. Because you have a hot date tonight. And you're rehearsing in your mind what you're going to say and what you're going to wear. And you see yourself. It's like a little TV screen. Putting on certain clothes. And where you're going to go with your date. What sort of restaurant and what it's going to be like. It's really like running a little movie. And you will see 
in your mind, particularly if you have a quite visual mind, you will see yourself walking around in these situations, a little image of yourself. If you have a more auditory mind, you might hear yourself, uh, for instance, in an argument, winning an argument with your boss, or convincing your boss to give you a raise as you drive to work, and all the things you're going to say and all the things your boss is going to say, and you will actually hear yourself talking. You will find those images, but like everything else, they'll come and they'll go. They won't be there permanently. They aren't you. They aren't the observer or they aren't the observation. So you can identify what is conventionally meant by I, ego, an image. But you will not find anything in all this that is a substantial I. Something that is sort of existing through all this experience in its own right. Something that needs to be defended, for instance, or enhanced. You won't find it there. So, in point of fact, the spiritual path conducted in this way answers the first two questions. What is ego and what is egolessness? What is ego is something that isn't there, that we only imagine. What is there is egolessness. Sure. Let me ask. Um, you just said that you, you don't find um, an ego or um, an I. An I is, is a consistent... I can't be found after all this observation. But is there always this ob observing? I have a hunch there is always you, an observing. Well, you look and see. Hmm. If you ever find, if you ever find a time when there is no observing, I want to know who observed that there's no observation going on. <laughs> That's okay, what I'll I'm try. going to ask you. You see. <laughs> I'll try to keep. <laughs> Noted for instance, that. now this is interesting because people do, you know, they go, for instance, have an operation and they get put out completely on their anesthetic. And they'll tell you, they'll come back and tell you there was no observation going on. So who was it that was observing that there was no observation going on? And if you question them closely, you find that what they really mean was there was a big disjunction in worlds. That, that what they were observing was they were lying on a table. I had my wisdom teeth out and they, the way they did it with me is they had an intravenous uh, hookup and you started counting backwards, 99, 98. And then the next thing you know, you're looking at a clock in the waiting room, which is going very slowly. Now, truly speaking, it's a, it's a construct going backwards and figuring out, oh, I must have been out, but I have no experience of being out. I have experience of uh, counting and seeing a clock. That's exactly what Brian was saying about driving. I exactly, think. it's an Where extreme case of um, it. You, you find that uh, something's missing. You've decided something's missing from... Um, and that's what I've noticed in my observation. Sometimes that um, uh, there are times when I can see things, there's an observer, that's me, I'm <laughs> watching things happening, and then there are other times that um, something is so, either the mind is so busy, or the outward world uh, uh, is so busy, that I don't observe it anymore. I, I'm not observing, but I'm just kind of caught up in it, and 
And then when I get back to, oh, I, I was um, trying to do an observation uh, meditation there. Um, where was I for the last 10 minutes anyway? And, and point of fact, you're, you're actually, you're, you're absolutely right. The, uh, the extreme case of being under an anesthetic is really something that happens to us uh, throughout the day in little ways. You know, we're always having these little disjunctions. In point of fact, if we start observing closely, we see that the world, uh, the contents of consciousness do not just float through on an even keel, so to speak. They go along and then the, the, something's going along here and something's going along here. And our minds construct an idea of a continuity that doesn't really exist there. And it's much closer to quantum mechanics. I don't want to get off on that subject, but the world actually, quantum mechanics is a much more accurate reflection of how we even actually experience the world with these discontinuities. Yeah. Uh, in the extreme example you suggested of uh, being you know, put under with anesthetic, from a mystic's point of view, that, uh, that idea of the, the missing block of time or missing experience there, is it a case of no objects arising in consciousness, or from a mystic's point of view, is there just nothing between that 98 and then sitting in the waiting room. It's a case of no objects arising in consciousness. And we have to be careful here because uh, when you have the idea that nothing happened during a length of time, you assume that time is, that consciousness is bound by time. In other words, that sort of consciousness is in time. And so if nothing's arising in consciousness, then we could say nothing's arising in consciousness for three hours. Truly speaking, if nothing's arising in consciousness, time isn't arising in consciousness. So it isn't a question of experiencing nothing arising in consciousness for three hours. It's a question of experience nothing arising in consciousness, not even time. This seems like quite a technicality, but is it, is it more than that? No, it's, it's, it's not a technicality. It's an actual experience. This is what the whole meaning of uh, eternity is. That truly speaking, time itself is something that arises in consciousness and can pass out of consciousness. And time itself, and again, look at your own experience. What is your true experience of time? Your true experience of time is that sometimes it goes very fast, sometimes it goes slow, sometimes it seems to almost stop dead. Now, we construct a conventional time for social purposes. It would be very inconvenient if we uh, just went on, you know, the, the reality. Because then if I said, uh, uh, I'll meet you in the middle of the day, you know, my middle of the day might not be your middle of the day. So we can we pick something in the clock here, and we say, well you know, I'll meet you when these hands are there, and then we construct the whole idea of time around that. But truly speaking, time itself is a uh, something that happens in consciousness. Consciousness does not happen in time. So the answer to the first two questions, ego and egolessness, are, can only be answered, and both can be answered at one stroke, simply by finding out what is the truth of your own situation. Really finding it out. 
really finding it out is very, very difficult. It's very, very difficult, not because it isn't always obviously present here now. It's very, very difficult because we are full of all sorts of false ideas that we take to be real. We're full of all sorts of worlds, cosmologies, constructs, as you mentioned earlier, which we are uh, uh, imbued with in our youth. We are actually initiated into these uh, paradigms, these cosmologies, through our families, then later through education, and so forth. And if you try to dispel yourself of any of those things, then the the, the outer world or other people will... Try you know, to convince you all the more that there will be tremendous resistance. <laughs> there will be tremendous resistance. Yeah. There's tremendous inner resistance yeah. because the construction of a world is the construction of a self. They share the same boundary. And when you start looking into investigating these things and you find that these boundaries aren't really there, then it starts to get uh, frightening. It's also frightening to other people. Because people share a reality that's predicated on everybody agreeing what the reality is. And when somebody disagrees, that's very threatening. Let me get... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, um, one of the ways I'm integrating this is I see, um, like, my thoughts and my feelings, um, in a sense, are my predicament, which um, continues to support um, this idea of who I am. Um, and when I, I've had an experience that I want to share out and get a reality sure. check back, um, that when I really push these things and I really push my thoughts and I push my feelings, that occasionally I have this breakthrough where um, I get this sense that um, that I'm not those things, and all of a sudden I become the awareness. I have this insight, like 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 I, I, all of a sudden I'm the I'm I'm the fireplace and I'm the trees. And it's this sense that I can't hold on to, but I catch a glimpse of it. And I'm, I'm sensing that that's the egolessness, and it feels really good. And it feels really whole. But that, I can't keep it. <laughs> that is the insight which this kind of inquiry aims at. Mm-hmm. It doesn't aim at coming up with a new theory or philosophy or construct. It, it aims precisely at what you're talking about. It aims at coming up with this actual uh, experience, in quotes, because... Well, in that case, it is an experience because it does pass. It is just a glimpse. But once you have that glimpse, that taste for yourself, then you have picked up the scent. Do you know what I mean? Then you know what to follow. Then you less and less inclined to look for some new theory or some new way of looking at things. You just want to see this, feel this, be this reality. For a very good reason. You say it feels good. I mean, after all, the bottom line is here, we're talking about suffering. Is there an end to suffering? Mm -hmm. God feels good, you know? This is the whole business with God, really, if you want to come down and be very pragmatic about it. People think God's some awful, terrible thing you have to live with, you know? But the the reality is God feels good. God is, and I don't mean feely, feely good. I mean, soul deep feels good. Excellent. I mean, this is exactly when I talk about insight and what and what's this inquiry leads to, you gave a very good description of it. Very good description. Quite different from anything you've ever experienced before and quite different from the way you think of knowledge and, you know, it's, some, it's a breakthrough. It's something, you, you know, quite startling. 
Go ahead. How do you hold it? <laughs> you don't. That's your problem. Who's holding? Who's holding? Who's trying to hold? Now, now let's talk about this because it raises an interesting question. If the reality is that we there is no ego there, and the reality is egolessness, or there's no real self, and there's only selflessness, then why do we have a problem? And this comes to uh, her third part of the question. Uh, how can you use ego to overcome ego? Now, if we start to see that in a certain sense, ego, we can identify a conventional ego, this image, that we see comes and goes in a consciousness, we, get, uh, we start to get a sense of the, the binding quality of this. And we're on a very uh, uh, thin ice here uh, from the point of view of language. It's very difficult to talk about. But let me give you some uh, uh, metaphorical situations, some analogous situations. Imagine yourself playing Hamlet on the stage. You are playing Hamlet, and you are saying the lines, and you're, and if you're a method actor, let's say you're a method actor, you're feeling all the emotions of Hamlet, and you're going through all this business. And when the play is over, the curtain comes down, you come out for your applause, and you go backstage, and you go out to dinner. And hopefully you've left Hamlet. So you're Steve playing Hamlet, and you play Hamlet, and then you stop playing Hamlet. Now, what happened to Hamlet? You allowed him to pass away. You allowed it to become just a fantasy. Or hey, a who was Hamlet? Nothing at all. A role you are playing. A way of behaving and being that you assumed for a, a particular mm -hmm. reason and a particular circumstance. And on another level, it's a metaphor for all of us. You know, a story about all of us. As the bard himself said, all the world's a stage. And we are all actors who come and play our parts and pass away. This is what I is, ego is. It doesn't, it doesn't have any, uh, any more existence than this. And when you uh, leave it behind, you don't leave behind a sensation. You don't leave behind emotion. You don't leave behind thought. You don't leave behind what you call will or decision-making. When Steve is on stage, he's Hamlet. When he leaves the stage, he's no longer Hamlet. But thinking goes on, feeling goes on, sensation goes on, will goes on. People often have this idea that being uh, egoless or achieving egolessness is thoughts will cease or feelings will cease or emotions will cease or something else. All that ceases is a certain role. Now, the analogy breaks down here because in point of fact, what Steve does is when he leaves the stage and he goes out to dinner, now he starts playing Steve, the actor, which is another role. 
And then he meets some uh, good-looking woman, and he goes home with her, and he starts playing Steve the Lover, which is another role. Yeah. Yet, if you're playing a role in doing it successfully, part of what you have to be able to do is to really take that person in and to identify, um, you know, that's the method, is to identify within yourself, you know, those aspects of that person to then be able to portray that. And, and you aren't successful in portraying that role if you can't relate that in, in some respects to the kind of who you are. So, you know, is it really completely separate? Um, or, you know, or do the two kind of touch on each other? Well, in, you're right. In the method, what you do is you look for roles that you play in, quote, real life to find a, a, a way to play the role on stage. You're still looking at roles. And in point of fact, method actors, uh, that's one method of acting. There's also the English school, which builds the character from the outside in, which can be just as effective. Well, Laurence Olivier and, you know, a lot of great actors of our day. In fact, a friend of mine, and this is, I'll tell this story because it has a, relate, a bearing on this. A friend of mine uh, in Hollywood was a producer and he knew uh, Jose Ferrer. Does everybody know who Jose Ferrer is? And he was in a production with him once when they were younger. And Jose Ferrer, I forgot what it was, but there was a stage production. Jose Ferrer was playing this uh, part on a uh, on on stage. And my friend was a production manager in this production or whatever in the wings. And he was watching the the climax of the play. And Jose Ferrer had a very passionate part. And my friend is watching him and really, and he's not even in the audience, he's in the wings and his tears are coming into his eyes because it was so moving. And the act is over and uh, Jose Ferrer comes running off stage, running back to his dressing room because he's got a date. And my friend was so horrified because <laughs> nothing lingered of this role, you know what I mean? He dropped it, like just like that, he could drop it. Now, what does happen to some actors, and I know a, a number of actors in Hollywood, is they do get into the role, and they don't leave the role on stage, and they take the role to dinner with them. And if they're in a production that runs three or four months, and it's uh, some very uh, disturbing character, uh, after a while they get very upset with this. And they can't wait to get another part because they'll describe it that way. I, I lived with Hedda Gabler, for instance, you know, for three months. I, I can't stand her. They, they don't leave their work at the office. It's very difficult for actors and actresses to do that. In extreme cases, and there is one uh, story that I've told before, uh, that's a true story of an actor who played, uh, this guy, I think it was Border Patrol, one of these 1950s, uh, TV movies about, um, uh, some cop, some authority figure. If it wasn't Border Patrol, it was something like that. And the actor was flying from New York to Los Angeles and started trying to arrest the person in the seat next to him because he flipped out. He thought he was the guy in Border Patrol. And they took him off and put him in a sanatorium for a few weeks and gave him a lot of Valium or whatever. And he was, you know, it wasn't permanent. But you can, how you can, what happens? You believe you are the role. Now, when Steve is acting Hamlet, he knows that he's not Hamlet. He may really get into the part, but he knows that he isn't Hamlet, if he's sane. When he leaves the stage and he goes out to dinner, he goes back to being Steve. Now, the trouble is he really believes he's Steve. 
Is that sane? Hmm? Is that sane? No, it's insane. But you see, we think it's sane. Now, if, and actually you can carry this analysis further, and this is very interesting to do. We think we are one particular role, but if we analyze it very closely and watch ourselves very closely, how we are through the course of a day, a week, a month, a year, and even over years in our lifetime, because they change, we find that we are not one role. We have several roles that we slip in and out of. And sometimes one role is dominant for a period in our lives, and then sometimes it gets shuttled away, shuffled away. For instance, uh, one example uh, uh, that perhaps is in some of your experience, and that's sort of an obvious example, is often when you're young, you have a role of an idealist in one fashion or another, politically or religiously or romantically. And as you get older, you shuck that role and you become a realist, so to speak. And you remember fondly the days of your youth when you were an idealist. We pass through that, that sort of transition and the society supports it, so it's an easy kind of passage. So we aren't, Steve isn't even a particular role, Steve, when he goes to dinner. He's Steve if he's going to dinner with his professional colleagues, he's Steve, the professional actor at that moment. And if we watched his biography unfold, we would see that he's actually quite different people with, with other different people. Perhaps he's uh, not only the lead in this, but he also owns the theater company. He's a big uh, uh, a business person, producer and whatnot. And he orders everybody around, and he's a real son of a bitch, and everybody's terrified of him, and he goes home to mother. <laughs> he's nine years old. <laughs> Interesting. Watch in your own lives. These, I'm, I'm trying to pick exaggerated situations, but you can see how it works in your own life. The parent one is great. Here you are an adult, perhaps a middle-aged adult, and you go home to your parents, and you say, well, that child has come back. Where'd that child come from? Who are you? Who are you really? Underneath all this, underneath all these shifting roles. So if we think of ourselves as the ego, the, the self, as being a role that we have uh, adopted in certain circumstances, and this is where we find ourselves, then the last part of the question is, how do we use this role to get out of the role? And the answer is very simple, although quite mysterious. There is a role that gets you out of all roles. There is a role to adopt that gets you out of all the other roles. It's called the role of the spiritual seeker. It's a temporary identity. To become a spiritual seeker is not the end. Whether you do it informally or formally, whether you shave your head and, and take refuge with the Buddha and go out with a begging bowl, you've adopted then a role, spiritual seeker. It's a vehicle that carries you beyond all roles because it's the one role that self-destructs. It's designed to self-destruct. That's why anybody who's ever been on a serious spiritual path will tell you how frustrating it is. How, how maddening it is. How infuriating it is. 
And the role continues and gets, uh, in that sense, more and more paradoxical. And the situation gets more and more paradoxical until something snaps. That's the mystery of it. There's a little Zen story that describes it perfectly. And it's a koan. Koans are always puzzles, and the, and the disciple has to come up with a solution. And the koan is, you take a bottle, and you take a goose egg, and it's a bottle with a narrow neck, that, and you put the goose egg in, and then the little, was it gosling or whatever, hatches, and then you feed it, and the goose grows. And pretty soon it gets too big that it can't come out the neck of the bottle. And now you have a problem. How do you get the goose out of the bottle without breaking the bottle and without killing the goose? Anybody want to try for an answer? <laughs> Gee, you're embarrassed now to try for an answer. Well, if you were with a Zen master, you have a big stick. <laughs> That's why none of us are with a Zen master. Well, I don't have a big stick. But yes, you're Don't gonna... feed the goose. What? Don't feed the goose. Don't feed the goose? Then the goose will die. Well, until it's just about there, it's thin enough. <laughs> <laughs> its bone structure is too big. Okay. Now, but no, wait a minute. I want to stop here because this is very good. You see, he made an interesting start. This, at least he started. The rest of you wouldn't even start on the spiritual path, but he made a start. And his start was the way we usually try to solve a problem, through the intellect. The intellect went to work. Here's a problem. and started trying to figure this out. And it came up with a solution. He would have gotten whacked by a master, but at least he had the courage to get whacked. All right? Then he would have gone back and he would have thought some more about it. Now he's become a spiritual seeker. He's on the path. Everybody else says, ah, it's a stupid story, a stupid question. They go about their business. The answer is, the goose is out. What does that mean? That's the mystery of it. That's why mysticism is called mysticism. It isn't by starving it, though. It gets skinny and pulling it out. And it, well, I'm still here. <laughs> and it isn't by whatever the intellect can figure out, which is why these Zen koans are set up to defy an intellectual solution. Precisely. But the way you use the ego, to use uh, her terms, to overcome the ego is to adopt a role that is designed to self-destruct, and that is the role of a spiritual seeker. Yes. Sometimes I think that I need to have a big ego to accomplish some of the things that I want. It's kind of a problem in my life right now. There's maybe certain things that I want to do, and I want to do them well, but I've sort of put them on hold because I'm not interested in developing a big ego. So what I'm trying to figure out is how to accomplish certain things without that ego. Because you, sometimes you see great actors or great musicians are doing so well, and you associate them sometimes with a, with a big ego. They they act like they have a big ego, and you think, well, that's how they got to where they are. Saying, "I can do it. I'm going to do it," and this and that. Well, I'd like to do things without that will, without that. Well, I. give us one example, just so we're in sync from your own experience um, of what I would like to yeah. do. I think that you think needs a big ego, um, or may need a big ego. I think just uh, play music. I'd like to play some music. Mm. Do you play music at all? I play the flute. Flute. Uh, do you ever just go out in the woods and play a little flute? or? I've done that before. Mm. Yeah. Do you have a sense of big ego? Um, 
No, but it seems that the, the you really need that will to practice every day and that constant I can, I can to develop the skill that you, to become very proficient. Well, but let's start with just the music. The music has nothing to do with ego. In fact, I'm not a musician, but other musicians have told me this. When you are playing at your best, you have very little sense of self. Is that true in your experience? It seems like it, yeah. Yeah. So actually, and this is true of a lot of the arts, uh, when the uh, actor's on stage, for instance, and a great moment, and I heard this from actors, it's as though something else takes over. It's not that they're confused that they think they're Hamlet, but they have a sense that they're not doing anything. There's only the role of Hamlet there, and there's no interference from any other role, and yet they're not, uh, you know, they're not, they haven't flipped over the edge and gone psychotic. And this is, I think, true of probably of most arts, playing music, I think, particularly. The, the, the greatest moment is when there's no ego there. Now, what does it take to, uh, to actually, you know, do the disciplines and so forth? Is it ego? And if we break that, it takes uh, a certain amount of uh, commitment, discipline, but those aren't necessarily associated with ego. Maybe that's what I'm doing, because I, I am associating them with ego. But why? Well, a commitment is to simply, a whole bunch of commitment is to remember. So you say, okay, I'm going to practice an hour a day. One of your big problems is just going to be remember the next morning that you made the commitment yesterday to practice an hour a day. You said, I mean, there are little devices you can help that. And then you have to practice detachment. Because, of course, the next day comes around and you're going to want to go off, you know, here, there, see a movie or get a better job and there won't be time to practice your music and all that. And so all these other desires are going to arise in consciousness and you're going to have to be detached from them. You're going to have to let, let them arise and and not be a slave to automatically be rushing around to satisfy them. And then finally, when you are actually practicing, you are going to have to practice the opposite of ego. You're going to have to practice surrender. You're going to have to get out of the way of your fingers and the music and everything else. At least this is what all musicians I've ever talked to have told me. You're going to have to let the music play. So right there, you've, you've implemented three of the four uh, basic principles of the spiritual path. Commitment, detachment, surrender. What ego is something that's laid on top of that, has nothing to do with art. In fact, up until the last couple hundred years, when arts sort of had to take the place of religion in some way, uh, art was spiritual art, sacred art, and had nothing to do with ego, and quite the opposite. It was often a spiritual practice in itself, as it was in Japan, for instance. The, the ego aspect of today's art is that, that people feel that they can uh, get, get worth through uh, being a great artist. And then they get some sort of reinforcement, role reinforcement. And of course, then they're miserable. And you know why people who are great artists are often miserable? I mean, great artists we associate with having a big ego is because they know it isn't them. And they know it's a lie. So you go, I think it was um, 
Oh, Sally Fields. I don't know if, you ever, if you, any of you remember this. About four or five years ago, she won the uh, Oscar. And she'd won it before, and then she won it again, and she got up. And she cried, and she said, Oh, I'm so glad you gave this to me, because now I know you love me. You gave it to me twice, you know. Once wasn't enough. <laughs> Here's a woman who actually is a very fine actress, uh, has certainly a, a great star. I mean, she's at the top of her profession. And she's so insecure and miserable. Why is she insecure and miserable? Because she wants to own this talent, claim it. This is me. It's not true. It's a lie. A, a, a perhaps crude way of saying it, but a much healthier, saner way to say it. It's a gift from God. You've got no problem if you take it as a gift from God. You only got a problem if you, if it's yours. I'm doing this, I'm this, I'm this. Because you yourself will never believe it. The bigger the uh, success, the more out front it is, the more insecure, miserable, and happy you're going to be. Then the more defensive and so forth you're going to be. This is why so many people who are very successful are, uh, you know, sons of bitches. It's all, it's defense. The actual, well, all I'm trying to communicate to you here is the actual doing of the uh, art could be a spiritual path, playing the flute. That's, that's nice. That's, I like that. That's, I that, think that's what I'm searching for, is to do, some, do everything in that aspect rather than the ego aspect. I suggest to you, if you haven't already read it, a little book, a very, very thin little book we have in the library. You can pick it up. It's called Zen and the Art of Archery. And it's about taking archery as a spiritual path. And it's about a German professor who went over to Japan uh, to teach, and then he got interested in archery, Zen archery, and he started studying it. And so it's written from the point of view of a Westerner trying to grapple with this art form. And uh, it's a very interesting book. I mean, you might get some clues about uh, applying it to your own practice. Okay, well, if there are no further questions, we'll bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to stay around and have tea and check out the library and just chat or whatever you want to do.